This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. While Canada's history and culture have been shaped for centuries by Indigenous and other racialized Canadians, many of us have a lot to learn about most of them. That's the key finding of a survey Historica Canada commissioned. While we spent Canada Day celebrating our country, Historica Canada CEO Anthony Wilson-Smith joined me to discuss the poll and more. Bob, we try every candidate to sort of give people a chance to test their own knowledge about the country, sometimes in fun ways, sometimes more serious. We started out this year with the idea of finding out what Canadians knew about some, you know, some very specific developments, for example, less, you know, less achievements in sports, more in areas like science, medicine, and health. So we were off in that. And then as we were developing it, we then, you know, we then found ourselves in the middle of this remarkable social movement going on, specifically, you know, dealing with with a history of black and, and, and discrimination toward black community and, and uh, indigenous community. So we thought we would, you know, we thought we would expand on that and find out what people knew about achievements from within those communities on their own behalf or for all Canadians. And, and let me say, first of all, you know, we went into this just saying, we know that a lot of people won't know a lot of these answers because this is information that hasn't been taught before. So it was not, you know, it was not in effect an IQ test on Canadian knowledge or anything. How were the questions chosen and by whom? Well, we have uh, a lot of uh, actually professional historians on staff. We have about 30 people in our head office and a whole bunch of MAs or PhDs or otherwise. So they sat down and went through those. We also run the Canadian Encyclopedia, which has about 20,000 articles on things exclusively Canadian, including a number of, uh, of you know, remarkable people and histories from Black and Indigenous communities. So we had, you know, we had no shortage of material to draw on. And then we just like, we, we go in a format of true-false just to sort of engage people rather than saying, did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? You know, we, we find that people like to take a test and see how they fare, even when it's going to be a tough one. What surprised you the most, Anthony? Or maybe put it another way, which contributions of prominent Canadians did those who took part know the least about? Well, you know, again, it wasn't so much a surprise what people didn't know. I think it, it's, it's more a case of saying to people, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to give you a chance to find out about some of these people to make you more aware and make you maybe get interested in them. So, for example, you know, one in 25 Canadians know who Mary Tuax early was. Well, in fact, she's, you know, she's the, the Indigenous woman who achieved constitutional change by getting Indigenous women the right to vote who'd been marginalized in the Indian Act. I hear, I hear my dog announcing That's fine. agreement with that, that she should be acknowledged in this. So that was 4%. Yeah, realistically, if you ask about constitutional achievers of any form across the country, you're going to get a low rate of response. And I'm afraid in, you know, in an Indigenous community, you know, when it's an Indigenous achievement, it has not been as well taught. So that's one. There are signs, though, you say, that Canadians are eager to learn more about those who've been on the margins or sidelines of of history in our society. Oh, no question, Bob. And I'll I'll tell you a couple of specific measures for it. So one is, as you'll know, we do the Heritage Minutes, which I guess is the uh, probably almost certainly the best known thing that we do. 
And in recent years, we've focused on telling some of those stories. So a couple of years, for example, before Viola Desmond, the black race ag- activist, popped up on a $10 bill, we had actually done her story in a minute, in a Heritage Minute. That remains one of the most popular that we've done. Well over 2 million views within the first month of release alone and a lot of favorable, you know, a lot of favorable remarks. We also track, we run the Canadian Encyclopedias, which has about uh, 14 million users a year. You know, and uh, we can, you know, every week we look at what the most popular stories are. So in recent weeks, we've seen a real focus on residential schools, on Indigenous history, on the history of Black Canadians, on a lot of related topics. Sometimes we know in exam period, we see certain topics go up because students are just focusing on that and using it as a resource. That's not the case with this. We're able to see where the readership's coming from. And it's basically people saying, wow, I think I need to learn a whole lot more about this. You know, I think I'm going to go and find out. Here's the beginning. You mentioned Heritage Minutes. How long has that been around, that aspect of Historica Canada? The Minutes first began in 91, 1991, um, and were brought forward and paid for at the time by Charles Bronfman, who's uh, st- you know the philanthropist who's still actually a very active member of our Historica Canada board. So they ran... Right through about the mid 2000s, there were about uh, 75 or 80 or so, and then frankly ran out of money for a while. And then in 2012, we brought them back, and we've done about uh, close to a dozen since then. And actually, we'll soon pass our uh, within the next couple of years, we'll release our hundredth. So it's quite a body of work behind. Anthony Wilson Smith, CEO of Historica Canada. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. A new national security law is in effect in Hong Kong. It criminalizes what the Chinese government considers secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces. People have been arrested for possessing pamphlets, offenses that could carry steep sentences. To find out how this new law will affect the residents of a city that's taken to the streets over the last several months to protest against the Chinese government, Libby discussed with Charles Burton, an expert on Canada-China relations from the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and Chuck Wan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. The only word I can think of is we're in a mad, mad, mad world. We sort of expected this would happen, but we never expected the extent of the law. One of them is the Article 38, which extends to anyone outside of Hong Kong, any nationality, any ethnicity, who might subvert the state by uh, asking our own government for sanction against uh, China, for example. That would be a crime in, in Hong Kong. So what, to talk to that person or what? No, the crime would be advocating for either Hong Kong independence or advocating for sanction against Hong Kong or China uh, would be a national security crime. Right. And whoever does that, uh, be very careful when you travel, even transit through Hong Kong airport, you're liable to be arrested. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong. So to this, in the sense, China does not regard me as Canadian citizen. They still regard me as a Chinese citizen or Hong Kong citizen. Even for Charles, who has nothing to do with Hong Kong, other than he speaks better Mandarin than me, is also susceptible for these arrests because the law says that. Okay, never mind you guys, no offense, but what about the people who are in Hong Kong? Uh, we've seen huge demonstrations. What about the people in Hong Kong, Charles? Well, I think, uh, as Chuck says, this law 
uh, is extremely comprehensive, and the definition of the crimes um, being uh, you know, sedition, secession, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces is extremely broad. And under the law, the Hong Kong police are not bound by the um, common law provisions on search and seizure, so they can break into people's houses and look for things or seize people in the middle of the night uh, without um, due process or any, you know, any uh, warrant from a judge. And um, in cases which are defined as complicated or involving foreign collusion, the um, the accused can be transported to mainland China for uh, for Chinese style law, which you know we know about from the Kovrigan's favor case, is not uh, going to extend any due process there. So it's essentially um, the end of any ability of people in Hong Kong to express themselves freely or for people abroad, um, particularly persons of Hong Kong origin, to petition governments to try and um, um, lobby the Chinese government to abide by their commitment to the Sino-British Joint Declaration and the basic law, which guarantees 50 years, no change, and uh, one country, two systems. So, as Chuck says, um, people here in Canada who have been active in the movement to uh, promote freedom and democracy in Hong Kong should not return to Hong Kong from uh, July 1st. The um, the law is not retroactive, but uh, my suspicion is that uh, you know no one who has any interest in in democracy and freedom and and the uh, nature of the political culture in Hong Kong and have expressed so in any kind of forum is safe now. Is this the end of uh, one country, two systems? Is it gone? Yes, I think that would be fair to say. And the question really is the extent to which the government roots out people. We've already heard of a case today where a Hong Kong uh, British Dependent Territories passport holder attempted to uh, leave for London and was arrested on the airplane. So, you know, this is uh, this is pretty serious stuff. I think China is uh, waiting for all this to die over, uh, they, like, just like what happened in Tiananmen Square. They might wait a year or two or three and everybody will be back to normal. Everybody will be wanting to go back to the one billion people market that they so used to deal with. This is my my biggest worry right now. Charles Burton, an expert on Canada-China relations from the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. The federal conservatives are asking the procurement watchdog to review the circumstances around several sole-sourced contracts between the government and We Charity. That includes an arrangement that'll see the Toronto-based youth organization manage a nearly $1 billion federal program for student volunteers during the pandemic. That contract has prompted questions about a potential conflict of interest, as both Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife have connections to We. Tory critic Pierre Polyevra expressed his concerns to Libby. This is a billion-dollar sole source contract to a Trudeau-linked charity uh, for the purposes of creating, quote, paid volunteer positions, something that itself is an oxymoron. Uh, and uh, it doesn't, uh, there is no rationale for the outsourcing of the program at all, all of which uh, arouses suspicion and provokes our uh, call for the Auditor General to perform a full audit and find out not just where the money ultimately goes, but also to obtain all of the documents that led up to the original decision. We, We don't think this would have been a proposal that the public service 
would have advanced, given that they could the bureaucracy is fully capable of implementing a program program like this without a third party charity to run it. And so we want to know who who instigated it from the very beginning. Did it come from we? Did it come from Mr. Trudeau or some other individual linked to the organization? Or did it, as he's claimed, in fact, come from the public service? He said with you know, great conviction, the WE charity is the only organization big enough to handle this. Well, that's false. I know that because I was the minister responsible for another organization called the Department of Employment and Social Development, which administers programs like this all the time. Uh, it, uh, we have something, for example, called the Canada Summer Jobs Program, which gives uh, a wage subsidy of about $7 an hour to employers who hire young people for the summer and then the employer pays the other seven or eight dollars an hour and then the the young person can get a job working for a local small business a charity non-profit not-for-profit community association etc uh, and that program has been in existence for well over a decade and a half uh, all the prime minister would have needed to do is expand it say i want to earmark an extra 20 or thirty thousand youth job placements, uh, and we'll invite any charity or non-profit uh, in the country to simply hire a, a local young person and, and receive the, the summer jobs wage subsidy. That would have been a very easy way to do what he claims he wants to do. Involving this Trudeau-linked charity in the program creates a, a lot of suspicion as to what's really going on here. Yeah, do you have any theories? It looks like uh, the, that this has been driven by relationships. Uh, the prime minister's wife is considered an ambassador and ally for WE. Um, Mr. Trudeau has been a regular speaker at these WE conferences, which give him massive uh, publicity um, and massive visibility with large numbers of young people. Um, the organization has been very friendly to the Trudeaus. Uh, and I think that uh, the, there's no doubt that uh, there's a perception that these relationships may have led to this very lucrative contract. Pierre Polyever, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, listen, I, 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 I'm convening with my conservative colleagues. I've got a call with some other opposition MPs from different parties. We're going to craft a plan to use Parliament's authority to get our hands on all the documents get the, ethic, the, the Auditor General to do a full review, um, get the relevant officials to testify under oath so that we can find out how this decision was made. Uh, not to mention, I have to say, uh, Libby, I have not seen this level of journalistic curiosity uh, on a subject since the outbreak of the um, SNC-Lavalin scandal. So I think there's I think there's a lot of digging and investigation, and your listeners should be hopeful that with the combined efforts of our opposition and some in the media, not all, we can get to the bottom of this. And I'm hoping we can do it before a billion dollars goes up in smoke. You have my word that I'll do everything I can. Conservative critic Pierre Polievre. Less than 24 hours later, the government announced We Charity will not manage the program to pay students and graduates for volunteer work this summer. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked if he would cut ties with We. 
The way uh, this situation has unfolded has been uh, unfortunate. Uh, we will continue to work hard to make sure that young people get the opportunities to serve their country, but it will uh, no longer be with the organization WE. The WE charity will pay back money it's already received from the government. Masks are mandatory on the TTC, and starting July 7th, they'll be required in other public places where physical distancing is difficult. There's a $195 fine attached to this bylaw, but the TTC says they'll be relying on education rather than enforcement. Libby spoke with TTC spokesperson Stuart Green, city councillor and TTC board member Brad Bradford, and Sheila Pisey-Allen, executive director of TTC Riders. You know, I was out at the event this morning, and, uh, and, and we had a hard time giving the masks away because so many people are already wearing them, which is great. Uh, the message is getting out there, and, and really, uh, you know, this, the, the, the immediate term for us is about, uh, is about education, not enforcement. Uh, we want to get the word out there. We've got campaigns going out throughout the system. We've got uh, an advertising campaign in 11 different languages just to make sure people are aware of, of the need to wear a mask. Uh, and, and we think people will, will adhere to that. We know compliance in other cities around 90% when, when made mandatory without strict enforcement. So that's really what our hope and our, our expectation is. So your target is 90%. Uh, well, our target's 100% of anyone who can. There are some who shouldn't wear masks because of medical reasons. Children under two, for example, shouldn't wear them. Uh, there are people who cannot put on and take off masks. They will be exempt. There will be exemptions, and we would ask people, you know, to have some respect for people who aren't wearing masks because maybe there's a good reason that they can't. Brad Bradford, would you be worried if people on the TTC start talking to uh, trash-talking other people saying, why aren't you wearing a mask? Is that a concern? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think that we're, we're looking for any sort of conflict and, uh, nobody needs to, to be a hero out there taking on, uh, someone who doesn't, uh, wear a mask. And as, as Stuart said, there are reasons why folks can't wear a mask or it doesn't make sense to wear a mask. But generally speaking, uh, you know, there's a growing body of scientific evidence out there now that suggests that masks are a really inexpensive, um, non-invasive measure to help control the spread of COVID-19. And uh, as we take steps at the commission at the TTC to help restore consumer confidence, get folks back to transit, um, this is one of the measures that we need to, uh, to implement. And, uh, you know, I, I'm excited that we're moving forward with it today. Okay. And Sheila Pisey-Allen, do you feel safer on the TTC because of this? Yeah, um, I think uh, it's important, you know, masks and face coverings are an important way we can keep each other safe while riding transit. It's important to note that we're not just talking about masks. A face covering can be a bandana, a scarf, fabric, um, and the TTC is taking the right approach by distributing masks um, and not fines and making it uh, making information available to people. They're distributing a million masks, and that's the right approach rather than policing riders um, and issuing fines for people because there are barriers to accessing masks and face coverings. There's a cost barrier. And then for people living in the suburbs, they may need to take a bus to access um, affordable shopping to, to purchase masks. One of the reasons that we, we made face coverings mandatory now is, is for exactly that reason that, um, you know, there are people who need to ride the system. Uh, it's, a, it's going to be a busy system as people come back, and uh, physical distancing will not be possible. Um, and I just want to touch on a point, which is the, the issue of, you know, people policing each other. 
Um, you know, really, we don't want people doing that. We, we don't want people, uh, because there, there are reasons people can't wear face coverings and shouldn't wear face coverings. And, and we don't want customers getting into disputes about that. Um, you know, we want people to respect everyone. We want people who are able to wear masks to respect their fellow riders by wearing a face covering. And if they're not, if people aren't wearing a face covering, please respect that they may have a reason that they're not wearing one. Uh, so we really need that to, to, to get home too. I, I would just quickly add, Libby, that what we're hearing is consumer confidence will be slow to return for some folks. Not everyone's rushing out to get back on the TTC. What we can't do is reduce service levels anymore because that actually leads to more crowding when you're running fewer buses and trains. So this really does um, illustrate the funding gap. Uh, long-standing from both the province and the federal government. We rely extraordinarily on the fare box at the TTC, and it's certainly, it wasn't sustainable before, and it's even more of a challenge now as we hemorrhage money each week. So we do need the province and the federal government to fulfill their commitment, step up, and, and help us maintain service levels on the TTC. TTC spokesperson Stuart Green, City Councilor and TTC Board Member Brad Bradford, and Sheila Pisey allen Executive Director of TTC Riders. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Celeste in Hamilton weighed in on Trudeau and We Charity. I don't think that the Prime Minister can be trusted at all. Like, I really think he's targeting the youth to get reelected, and I think he, he, he likes to have control, and I think he wants to be reelected without any restraint so he can sort of forward his own agenda for the country. Masks or not, Gail in Toronto will not be taking the TTC anytime soon. I just wanted to let you know that I haven't used the TTC only once uh, from March 15th. And I don't intend to go back on now because I have breathing problems, but I don't want to avoid the trash trash talk from other people. So I will be walking a lot more than later on. I am a senior, but I will be walking anyway. Peter of Exeter called to wish Canada a happy 153rd birthday. A happy Canada Day to everybody. That And we are enjoying We're going to have a barbecue and a couple of brown pops and toast the country. Uh, and be, be very, very glad that you live in this country. Even with all the complaining we do and the taxes and all the rest of it. Be very glad that you live here. And I was in England last year in, in the summertime. I said to a fellow over there, I said, you know, we live in two of the best countries in the world. And he totally agreed. So there, and he also loved Canada. Proud patriot Tom and Ajax couldn't agree more. This Canada Day, I am even more grateful to be living in this great country because of you know, you look to the lunatic fringe, what is now the 49th parallel, what's happening there, and we aren't there. I am always proud to be a Canadian. I have my new permanent flag up. I have my house decorated, my deck decorated, a flag in the window of my 72 Ford. And this afternoon, after I finish my workout here, I'm going to put on my Made in Canada t-shirt, go out on my deck, barbecue lunch, drink a cold Canadian beer out of my frosty Canadian mug. Marie in Kitchener was busy in the kitchen, Canada Day. I am a proud Canadian and always, always bake a birthday cake. Um, for this special day, and um, I have little mini flags that I always put on it, and um, just waiting for my two of my children and granddaughter to come. And um, 
but but I, I'm we're and we're we're having a, a good day weather wise too. That's for sure. It's a special day for me. Okay, and it's, it should be for every Canadian. We we are so lucky to be living in Canada. And now, Fightback's knockout call of the week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Verna in Oakville, who wants to see the rules concerning visits to long-term care homes changed. I wouldn't mind if it got even more strict if I was allowed in. I would be prepared to bathe in sanitizer, to have a COVID test every single day, to wear complete PPE, even a hazmat suit, if I was allowed in to care for my husband. He is deteriorating, as so many other residents in long-term care are, and it's breaking my heart, and something has got to change, especially if there's going to be a second wave. And at the moment, if the weather's too hot, my visitor will be my visit will be cancelled. What's going to happen in October when the weather changes? We can't visit outside. Something there must be there must be a way. And and for me, I would do anything. Anything. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 367 9636. I'm Bob Comsick. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.